Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Alta Speed Technowell, live from Wisconsin. The Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you. As another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour, joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How is Wisconsin? You know, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. I have chosen to pick up a positive attitude. Here, here's the reality when you're doing like client site visit stuff, right? The reality is like when you work in IT, you come across problems, and that really shouldn't surprise anybody because the nature of our business is friction, right? We solve people's problems for money. And so nothing gets moved unless it's shoved. And anytime something's shoved, it creates friction. And so that's to be expected. So I've had my share of friction the past 72 hours, Steve, but it's been, it's been good. And I'm thankful for the opportunity that people are willing to pay me to solve their technical problems. So yeah, that's where I'm going to leave it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy and thankful for the opportunity to do what I do, even when what I do comes with a level of stress and its share of challenges from day to day. Well, I guess you can be thankful about the weather. At least, uh, at least down here in South Dakota, the weather's going to turn into the uh, low digit, low double digits for Celsius, which is like low, low to mid fifties in Fahrenheit for the next couple of days. So that'll probably be somewhat spread around. That's terrible. We, uh, you know, here they they actually have more snow here than they do in in. We have an easy winter so far in North Dakota. It hasn't really gotten all that crazy. We don't really have a whole lot of snow. There's more snow in the parking lot of my hotel room than there is in uh, back in North Dakota. So again, I guess I'll just count my blessings there. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts are entertained at one 855 450 That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Now listen, this week we're going to do something special. We're going to dig in. Steve and I have been doing you might say parallel things, uh, working on some of uh, similar projects, um, but with different perspectives. And so we're going to do kind of a special episode tonight, rearrange stuff a little bit and dig into some of that. But we're always interested in your feedback, things that are helpful to us. If we touch on something that you say, man, that was a particularly helpful episode. Tell us that because what happens is it guides how we plan future episodes. If you hear something that's of note to you and you say, hey, that really helped me out, that really saved, that really fixed something. Or if we touch on something and you go, that was really great, but I wish you would have answered X or I wish you would have dug into Y, let us know that, that will help. And of course, as always, the show only works with your questions. So if you have them, write in to live at asknoahshow.com and we would love to take your feedback there. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of December 3rd, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Roundcube, the open source webmail software offering, has merged with Nextcloud. Pipewire 1.0 has been released. MKV Toolnix has released version 81. Digicam has released version 8.2. KDE Plasma 6 has released its first beta milestone. And the Cinnamon Desktop has released version 6.0 with experimental Wayland support. Valve has put out their newest Steam survey results, and they show that the Linux market share surged to nearly 2% in November. And the Tails OS team has put out version 5.2 to address several bugs. In open source AI news, an open source LLM scanner named Virgil has been released to combat prompt injection. And News Research a private applied research group known for publishing open source work in the LLM domain has dropped a lightweight vision language model called News Hermes 2 Vision. Available via Hug and Face, the open source model builds on the company's previous Open Hermes 2.5 model and brings vision capabilities, including the ability to prompt with images and extract text information from visual content. You've heard of Beeper and you've undoubtedly heard me talk about Matrix at one point or another. Well, there is now a new project on the block, and 
it's making waves. So every so often you see an app come up and the promise is native iMessage on Android. And most of these things don't end up being all that they say they're going to be. In fact, I think we covered a story a few weeks ago in which there was an application called, I think it was called Nothing Messenger or something like that. And they they said, Nothing Chats, that's what it was, uh, from Sunbird. And they said, hey, this is going to do native iMessage and it's going to be really great and all the things. And like four days later, it's gone because there were so many security concerns and everybody could see what they were doing. In order to effectively bridge iMessage up until this point, people have been using essentially man in the middle. They intentionally man in the middle. And I won't make any bones about it. Beeper is doing the same thing with their with what they call Beeper Cloud or the Beeper app, they're effectively using matrix bridges to bridge all of the platforms into one place. And it works with varying degrees of success and it works with iOS and iMessage, but the catch is you have to run the bridge. Now, in the case of Beeper, it's open source, so you can go audit the code if you want and they'll let you run it on your own hardware. In fact, for a time being, they were even shipping people jailbroken iPhones to run the iMessage bridge on the device. So you and you alone were in control of your account. But for people like me that, listen, if I'm sending secure messaging, I ain't doing it through iMessage. So I don't really care. If they want to break end-to-end encryption, knock yourself out. I didn't trust it to begin with. But, and if I did care about end-to-end encryption, I'd just either do native matrix messaging or Signal or one of the many other very open sourcey, uh, you know, uh, auditable systems. So I don't care. And my iMessage account or my Apple account only exists to bridge to other, uh, you know, uh, fruity users. It, it really has nothing to do with the way that I primarily message. However, there is a new kid on the block and it is called Beeper Mini. Same people that put out Beeper, but there's a twist. So a developer, a young man, and I do mean young, sent a uh, a message to Eric, one of the founders of Beeper, and said, hey, I have had success in reverse engineering Apple's iMessage. And Eric said, there's no way, man. That's, that, that isn't a thing. Quote, I said, BS. No one has done that. No one on earth has done that. He tried to do it himself, and he messaged everyone that he could who had ever gotten close. No one had put all of the pieces together. But here was this developer in my DMs, a 16-year-old high school student, of all people, linking to a prototype. And it worked. So they launched this service called Beeper Mini. And effectively, it's the Beeper client, but instead of having matrix underpinning and doing all the things, it just does iMessage. And so the idea is you can get iMessage on Android. And unlike even Beeper's cloud service, it isn't relaying messages through a Mac. It is direct. Now, I'd be the first to say, we'll see how long it lasts, right? Because this effectively relies on reverse engineering Apple stuff. So they have to not change anything. But I don't know. I don't know what you think, Steve. I think this is pretty exciting stuff that they've been able to achieve this. And I'm also... I'm selfishly happy that it is an organization that is committed to open source stuff. They're releasing the codes. You can go look at this yourself. In fact, they have what they call a little proof of concept Python thing, and you can run it on your own machine and watch yourself send messages with the little blue bubbles to iPhone users. I think it's interesting. I think the the point at which they release the their code is the point where they probably end up and when I mean release the code, yeah, it can be open source, but when they actually release proof of concept and stuff like that, that's that at that point they're going to probably attract Apple's attention. Like yeah. it'll probably bubble up pretty quickly. Now, how quickly a company can pivot its APIs in order to break things, that that's a different story. Right. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how Apple responds, right? That will be of interest. But at the moment, you can go and download Beeper Lite, and you're able to message your friends on Android, or excuse me, you're able to message your friends on iPhones from an Android device with the blue check marks, and there's no distinguishable difference, and nobody's man in the middle in your account. The only thing I would add here, or my only other, I guess, commentary is... When I look at what they're doing, one of the things that is kind of scares me is what I liked about Beeper to begin with was that they made Matrix more approachable for normal human beings because most people don't care about setting up encryption and doing all the things and they don't want a bazillion 
options inside of their messaging client. They literally just want to sign it up. And if the bee's knees is to, is to bridge to all the things, then they just want an easy way to do that. And linking to GitHub pages isn't going to help most people. You have to be a nerd if you're going to take advantage of that. So that's where I thought Beeper really stood out and was doing well. What was what I took note of before and what came top of mind to me again when I saw Beeper Mini is they had they asked a question. They said, what are you most interested in Beeper for? And one of the options is I just want to bridge iMessage so that I can access it from other devices. And so that tells me or told me that they had a strong belief that that was a major portion of their user base, the people that just wanted to use iMessage. And they were they didn't really care about matrix. They didn't really care about it, but it was just a it was just a means to an end. Beeper Mini seems like a refined approach. And what was interesting to me was they didn't build a bridge and then tie it to matrix. It's just its own app that's going to talk directly to iMessage. So it, it scares me from the standpoint that are there people out there that would have been matrix and or you know, Beeper users, and now they're just going to stick with Beeper Lite because really all they were interested in the iMessage bridge to begin with and are we kind of getting shorted because we're not bridging to native encryption to matrix? It's its own little beast. So those are questions I have. And I, I don't know, there's necessarily a direct answer to it, but I thought this, I think what beeper is doing is pretty cool. I think that the fact that they've actually reverse engineered beeper mini and they're willing to give it a go. I think that's really cool. And at the end of the day, the further you get off of, out of, you know, Apple's walled garden, I, I think the better. I also question though, with, a lot of the changing regulations in the EU, don't you think that at some point Apple's going to start to open some of this up so that they can be, you know, compatible and and the ability to interchange messages with other services? I mean, won't they eventually be required to do so? Yeah, you know what, it gets, it definitely, you know, we're not lawyers, but it seems to me that you're getting into pretty sticky territory here, even even if it's not directly um, violating any any principles, the gray area is where a lot of a lot of companies get um, they run afoul. It's like it yep. puts you on the radar, and then something that might have been okay now gets everybody's attention, and that might get you shut down. Yep, I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said like it, it's one of those things like they'll be fine until they become successful, and once they become successful, then they're going to attract Apple's attention, and we'll see what really happens. So Steve has been an extraordinarily busy boy this week. Steve, I understand you have over well not just this week but over the past few weeks you've been upgrading stuff and migrating stuff in your house right and left and center pretty soon there's not going to be anything left of steve ovens 1.0 tell me about your next cloud upgrade and why that was such a critical thing for you and what the process looked like so we, we're not going to bore people too much about the the ins and outs of of doing a next cloud migration because that that varies depending on how you've installed it and all the rest of that but um Essentially, Nextcloud is critical for me personally and for my wife. It was one of the stepping stones that enabled her to feel free to pick whichever phone that she liked because we weren't tied for the calendar. And that was a big thing. So the first step in, in kind of freeing a, uh, my wife to be able to migrate wherever she wanted was the calendar. And then after we changed the calendar, it was a lot easier for me to be like, here's a ProtonMail app. This will work wherever you're at, you know. And now we're at the point where we've we've kind of decoupled her from wherever she is. And so that's why Nextcloud has become critical because she also now knows that like her pictures, like we set up an automation on her phone where whenever she plugs it in, the Nextcloud app fires up and syncs all of her pictures and stuff like that. And so um, we were able to get her off of iCloud and so Nextcloud is is a pretty critical app for us, um, and it has been running just fine on an i5 circa 2017, I want to say. But I it's running on a NUC or a NUC similar device made by Gigabyte, and the fan started to it started to make noise. It still spins. It's still fine. I opened it up like I. I I saw there's no obstructions. I blew it out. Um, but the problem is, is that fan has a specific type of blower fan 
right? So it's not just a fan. It's got a shroud and all of the rest of that. And honestly, with all of the work that I've been doing around here, I couldn't be bothered to try and just replace the fan. So I decided to replace the entire unit. And as part of that, um, I ended up picking up a B-Link computer that has two 2.5 gigabit uh, Ethernet ports. And so I ended okay. up changing out a switch so that I now have I have a 10 gig switch and a 2.5 gig switch with a 10 gig port uplink. Um, and all of that to say, I have shifted, like I because Nextcloud is running in a VM for me, I literally just picked up the QCOW image, plunked it on another box and turned it on and away you go. Um, so that has been that has been great. It's been flawless. And man, oh man, does Nextcloud fly on this? Like, I'm <laughs> shocked. Like I, I had been using, so I had heard about this plugin called Memories. It's it sort of tries to replicate the idea that like Apple surfaces, well, Google does too. They both surface pictures based on time or mood or collections or whatever. Like if you've taken a picture of your dog recently it then builds like a kind of a, a photo album of your dog for you to go look at so memories is something akin to that uh-huh but it was never very performant for me despite whatever tweaking i did um it was okay but between the the network upgrade and the it's now sitting on an mvme as opposed to a sata drive like it it is phenomenal fast uh night and day so there's been a big, big improvement for Nextcloud in terms of like how well it's, it's just adjusting. And I thought it was doing fine beforehand. Um, but that led me, this leads me to something I wanted to share with people. So I now have two uh, of these mini computers. One's called a Zotac, uh, Z-O-T-A-C. And the other one is a Gigabyte Bricks. I've decommissioned both of these because I uh, replaced them with newer hardware. The Zotac, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, the fan is working just fine. It's got eight gigs of DDR3 in it, and it's uh, I want to say it's a, a Core i5 as well. And there's a Gigabyte Bricks, and it's got I think it's got 16 gigs of RAM in it. Um, neither of them have hard drives in them for various reasons, like the hard drives were were going or or I did commission them. But I thought in the spirit of, I know we have listeners who are underprivileged or whatever. And I thought if you're in the lower 48s, um, I'd ship them out to wherever you're at. And the only reason I restrict it there is because there's there's cost and there's a bunch of paperwork when you're shipping internationally, um, especially when, when you're dealing with computer parts. So this is kind of like a first come, first serve. You send uh, email into live at asknoahshow.com and let me know what you think you're going to do with it. And uh, two people will end up getting a couple of these machines, both perfectly serviceable, especially if you're comfortable changing out the fan um, and you've got a small hard drive to toss at these guys. So they'll be good little machines for something. That's fantastic and generous of you, Steve. Well, nothing compared to some of the stuff that you've done in the past for, for various people here on the show. So I just, I was inspired by listening to you doing that sort of stuff. And I thought I would chip in as well. I love it. So I, I too have been getting some Nextcloud action. So I have, we've, we've rolled out Nextcloud for people in the past, but typically it's been for people that I need to choose my words carefully here, but have an open source interest, right? Which changes the way that maybe they view something that is to say if you come to me and you're asking to host one open source thing or the other it tells me a little bit about your value set right it means that you care about the software license and the software license is at least important enough for you to make the decision on what to host the thing i set all that up to say that when you're comparing that to a person that well they just want they don't care how the sausage is made. They don't care how the sausage is licensed. They just want sausage and they want good sausage and they want fast sausage. And if there's better sausage than the sausage you're offering, regardless of licensing and rollout and longevity and openness and API and all the regardless of any of that, if there's better sausage to be had, they would just rather have sausage. We had one of those people reach out and say, Hey, we're potentially interested in a solution. We recommended Nextcloud. They said, yes, we set it up for them. They're happy with it. Now, it was interesting because we were showing them the file sharing features. And one of the gals looks me and her eyes get as big as sausage. She goes, 
you can create multiple sharing links and they can have different permissions. Like one person can just drag and drop files, but they can't see what's in there. The other person can view all the files, but they can't edit them. And then finally you can give editing permission as if it's the owner of the folder. And you can have three of those separate links and three people can do three separate things with the same shared folder. That's awesome. You know how we do that now? We upload the same files to three, and they're using a, a different file sharing service. We upload it three different times to three different places and some people get read only and some people get write only and we don't even have the ability to do the file drop like Nextcloud does. This is amazing. And watching them, watching how well it worked for an organization that has no other metric to, to evaluate a product other than to say, it does exactly what they want and does it blazingly fast was rewarding to say the least. And then you got to give props to Nextcloud because their team has done such a fantastic job of tweaking and, and getting things up to par to where it's a really stellar experience. I also have to give props to, to the team at AltaSpeed for digging in and making all the little fine tweaks because we've rolled it out a few different times now and each time we learn something new and I'd say this is maybe the first time that we've rolled things out and I haven't had one user come back and say can we tweak this can we change this can we nope it was just it was perfect from day one and is a massive upgrade from where they were now and as I look at what their future looks like and the direction that they're skating to they're already talking about how they can do some collaborative editing and office editing inside of the cloud suite, which I know, even if they haven't arrived there yet, the look, the reality is Col Collabora is not fantastic. It's the official supported thing. I have not had great luck with it, but only office is fantastic. Only also office also is incredibly approachable for people that have used Microsoft office and want an easy transition. So all that to say, Nextcloud is fantastic. And, and this particular client that we've rolled it out, because they're an important client and because they're, I know that they're going to be not terribly tolerant to faults, I have been running their instance on my phone so I could get a firsthand idea of exactly how things work. And I'm using the, I think it's called DAVX, um, to do the syncing for, yeah, DAVX5. And it is essentially a little syncing agent. And what's fantastic about it is we imported... 2,000 plus contacts for this client um, from their old contact management system into Nextcloud shows up there right away and they said can we access the clients on our phone so first I pulled up the Nextcloud app and I, I didn't see it in there and then there's a little option that says hey install this little add-on and it will connect to DAVX we did that and boom all the all the contacts show up as if they're native contacts except I can just inside of my managed contacts on my Android phone check a little box and the contacts go away and then I only see the contacts that are local to my phone. So it's a huge win for Nextcloud, it's a huge win for open source and the overall quality is absolutely fantastic. Then to top it all off, they said, hey, we've got a bunch of iPhones and we really would like the ability to set up the contact syncing on our iPhones. And so we wrote them out a guide to do that, to set all of that up. And one of the things I've started to ask our team to do is, you know, typically we'll write out a, a guide and we'll publish it as, you know, a PDF or something like that or send it to the clients. Or if they have an internal documentation system, we'll put it there for them. I started to gently push people towards, hey, if we're writing this stuff and there isn't client specific stuff in it, just publish it on the MDM doc site. And then that way everybody has access to it. So if you're one of the fruity users and you want to set up your contact syncing to Nextcloud, there is a guide available at docs.mindrip1.com slash how to slash Nextcloud iOS contact sync. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But a huge thank you and huge props to the Nextcloud team for putting out such an awesome product that Steve apparently depends on, you know, his life depends on it. And I'm increasingly getting into it from the from the hosting side because it just delivers an awesome experience to clients. And there isn't a lot of stuff out there that does what Nextcloud does. The other thing, and you heard this in the news uh, out of the newsroom with, with JT and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Steve. I was elated to learn that Nextcloud has absorbed Roundcube. Roundcube, if you're not familiar with it, is a web-based mail client. And so I have a lot of domains registered to register for less. Roundcube is their default mail client. And so if you have email hosting with them, which by the way is a great deal, um, it's like 25 bucks a year. And they give you all the, in the, I think they give you five email accounts or something like that. So it's a, it's a good deal. But uses Roundcube for the front end, a web UI, open source mail, 
client, and it's it's really nice. I think mail, and I've shared this with uh, Frank directly. I think mail is the one missing component. Other than that, it is every bit as good as Office 365 or G Suite. The thing that is missing, of course, is email. And Roundcube is a forward in that realm from the standpoint that it's a class A email client. Now you just have to have a back end to tie it to. What were your thoughts, Steve, when you saw that Roundcube had been absorbed by Nextcloud? I think it's an interesting move. I I understand why you think that um, email is important. I mm-hmm. don't really see that. Honestly, there's a lot of hassle with, with running your own meal, email. I did it near mm-hmm. on a decade. Um, I, I understand how it works. I understand why people might want to. And I also understand running it at any kind of business scale can be a giant headache. Now, oh sure. all that said, if you're using it as a front end for a backend service like Office 365 or wherever you're hosting your email, then I'm all for it because it keeps everything in the Nextcloud ecosystem. I don't, I don't think that um, the vast majority of self-hosters will run mail because you're on residential internet and mm-hmm. you will have all kinds of blacklists and stuff like that. So I'm unsure of how the community is going to react to this. So I want to roll in the mud with you a little bit on this. So if I'm a if I'm a business owner and I you I, you tell me like hey Nextcloud it's great does all the things okay great looks awesome let's set it up and then and then you tell me yeah but you're also going to because you need mail so you're also going to buy an Office 365 subscription free chooser or a G Suite subscription free chooser and you know Nextcloud has the mail client so you can connect it in you can check your email from there as a business owner. Why don't I just use Google Drive or, or OneDrive? Why don't I just use Google Calendar or Outlook? Why do I need this Nextcloud thing if I got to get the email anyway? Because it's not really it's not really practical to host my own mail server, or it is practical, but the headaches will will abound. Well, this is like the mythical new Linux user that you're trying to mm-hmm, put at mm-hmm. me. That that's like saying that no, this company doesn't have email, which I don't buy in the first place. If if you're standing up a brand new company, maybe, right? But you're talking about... Well, I guess about... I'm not saying they don't have email. I'm just saying they already... What does Nextcloud have that the existing email providers don't also provide? Maybe that's a better way to ask it. I think that the level of integration that Nextcloud provides in terms of um, the controls that you can put in place in terms of turning on and off the, the apps that run inside of Nextcloud are huge. Not not least of which, file sharing is a big, big concern for lots of lots of companies, both big and small, right? And so okay. Nextcloud, when you're talking about okay, what what value does Nextcloud provide? Even if I don't take the email with it, the ability to to publish calendars that could be a thing. Like so, it can be a little bit uh, tricky to make sure that. Appropriate information coming, the only, back up a little bit. My disclaimer here is my only experience is with Gmail and that's through Red Hat when I when I come to talk about calendars and stuff like that. But I know that it can be quite tricky to um, give level of access without divulging too much information for people to use their calendar. Um, uh-huh. So that can be problematic in and of itself, whereas that, problem is significantly lessened with Nextcloud because of the way that the calendar works in Nextcloud. Um, so you've got possible calendar, you've got contact sync, you've got the um, you've got the just the file syncing in general and the sharing of files. All of those are really big things when it comes to uh, you're worried about a corporate data breach, right? So Sure, you could have a corporate data breach with Nextcloud if somebody targets you, but you're a whole lot more likely to have your stuff impacted if you're on a big cloud provider than being, uh, you know, a burger joint in Wisconsin. Like someone might target you, sure, but uh-huh. it's more likely you'll be caught up in a dragnet um, because, like, like if I just pick on Red Hat here, we have Google Drive, we've got Google Mail, we've got. You know, we use the Gmeet stuff, which means that they don't even have to necessarily be targeting us. If there's a breach at Google, 
the email, our drive, all of that stuff could potentially get swept up in that. Um, and okay. that is somewhat of a problem, right? Whereas with the, with the email, you could make the same argument, except that there's a significant overhead of making sure that the email stays working. Because if your sync doesn't work, people are a little more tolerant of that. If you click email and the email doesn't go, you're going to yeah. bet you're going to get a call immediately. Yes. And one every right. 45 seconds after that until it's fixed. Exactly. So being able to, one of the things that Red Hat's really good at is, is allowing the clients to give blame deferrals. So people, there's a lot of reasons that, that you might choose to run Red Hat products from the quality and blah, blah, blah. Like this is not a sales pitch, but the reality of it is there are companies that will not pick a product if they literally can't pick up the phone and pass the blame off to someone. And email mm. is one of those things. As an administrator, I want to get out of the way of this train. I don't want this coming at me. Yeah. Interesting stuff. I well, so it, we'll watch it. I I think I think it's if nothing else, even if we go even if we go down the route of like, hey, we need a bit more granular control over file sharing, and we want to be able to turn off and on apps. Having a solid email client, I think, is is a really nice step forward. Uh, for Nextcloud, and also makes Nextcloud the point of single point of contact for users, right? So they have the single point of place to get to, and then all of the other stuff gets tied to it. So again, huge congratulations to Nextcloud for the, the work they're doing. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Additionally, you didn't just uh, mess around with your Nextcloud instance and replace the box. You also made a move from Jellyfin or excuse me, from Plex to Jellyfin. Now, this is a, I'm watching this of particular uh, with particular interest for two reasons. One is I have two, I guess you'd call it classes of, of geek friends, right? I have one set of geek friends that are very open source-y, very Linux-y, and then I've got another set of friends that they're very much geeks in their own right, but they're not motivated by Linux open source-y stuff. It's just whatever the, as they see it, best tool for the job is. And virtually all of those people and... Many of the people that are on the Linux open source site use a lot of Plex. And it's always kind of perplexed me, see what I did there, because Plex does some strange things like bans entire swaths of IP, and that doesn't really seem to get under the skin of a bunch of geeks. They continue to use it anyway. It sends a bunch of information when you install it. That doesn't really seem to bother anybody. Plex is brokering the connection through your network. That doesn't seem to bother anybody. But So there's a number of red flags that I've looked at and been like, well, that's kind of interesting, but at the same time, again, enough of my well-respected geek friends use it that I've just kind of kept my mouth shut about it. Now, you're the first person I know that has started with Plex, was happy with Plex, knew what they were doing with Plex, and then something happened and you made a switch. So I have to ask, what happened? Well, we've been watching we've been watching kind of the news from Plex for a while. They, they had the data breach, and they've had... They've, they've made some more and more um, mainstream moves in terms of um, the things they choose to advertise on your on your dashboard, right? They, they're putting live TV in there and they're advertising their own movies and they have their own channels for all of the things. And that's fine, except that I don't like – that shouldn't be the default for what's happening not, not to mention the fact that – so you, you kind of already mentioned the idea that they just came out and banned a whole swath of IPs. Now, there is good reason for that. What, what was happening in that IP block is it was a cheap uh, – a really cheap hosting provider. And what people were doing was not just using Plex and, and setting it up and sharing it with people. They were charging people access – labor charging people to get access to their Plex on the idea that you could request them to add content and stuff like that. And so basically it was like pirating as a service um, or I'm assuming it was pirating as a service. Maybe they're actually going out and buying the stuff that's possible, but the, essentially there was enough noise coming from that, that uh, the Plex organization went out and just said, you know what? we're just going to not, we're going to block these IPs. And that that didn't particularly sit right, but I understood the decision. But they've been making some other questionable decisions. And the most recent one is this idea that 
um, it's sharing your watch history um, on your friends list. So like you can become Plex friends and you can share your library. Discover together, Steve. Yeah. Yep. And to some extent, like, okay, I get that because. Well, hold, I don't want to drive. By, I don't want to drive by this. So, so this discover together thing. So basically it's a setting that lets users share their ratings and their watch history and comments. But the problem is it's on by default. Now they'll tell you that it's, opt-in but their definition of opt-in is it shows you a little screen and says hey here's your private settings and it's private by default and here are all the settings and the settings are set to friends only so if you just click finish if you don't change anything it's not i mean it's not really opt-in because by default if all you do is click finish it's going to share all that stuff with your friends and so some, some people had some uh spicy viewing habits that got uh, sent out to their family members and they were none too happy and went to the forums to complain about it. Uh, I'm guessing that was, I'm guessing that wasn't directly your problem, but um the privacy aspect is concerning though, right? Well, the so part of the idea is um they have tons of information down to the hashes of well-known pirated content which is partly why they came to this decision about blocking the whole block of ips so mm. we know that they have that information but then the fact that like they're gathering it's not just hashes they're actually gathering the metadata about what you watch and how long you watch it and like did you binge watch it and like i don't need that i don't need they're trying to be the spot where you go to you go to Plex and it will connect you with Netflix and it will connect you with all these spots and Plex amp is good and all of that sort of stuff. I don't need that. I don't mm -hmm. want that. And that's not what I signed up for originally. Right. So you just want to watch the yeah. media. Exactly. Like we, we buy our content. I have a giant wall of Blu-rays and, uh, ridiculously enough i wanted a specific i wanted to get the new um, mario brothers movie cartoon in specific languages and i had to get a 4k blu-ray disc which meant that i actually had to go buy a 4k blu-ray ripper so that i could actually rip this to put it on my media um so it's like we're probably not the only ones out there going completely legit with this stuff. And I just don't need anybody to be kind of peeking over my shoulder, questioning whether or not I actually bought the stuff. What were some of your, what were some of your takeaways as you moved over to jellyfin? So I think I understand your reasoning now. How did the actual migration go and what did you, what were your takeaways? So the migration was uh, relatively smooth. Um, there was, there was some bumpiness uh, with, Part of it was lack of understanding. Like the documentation largely assumes that you're running some sort of Debian base. So when I was trying to get QuickSync running, I ran into like it would it would just simply not play the videos. Like I would enable QuickSync and then it would pop mm -hmm. up and say, oh, well, this video is not available in the format that your client can play and which is whatever ambiguous. So anyways, I eventually hunted that around a um, lot of the a lot of the kind of niggles were things like the library took a long, long time to scan relative to, and maybe that's just because I haven't done a fresh Plex. Scan no, in a long time. no, that's not why. It's be, it's uh, so I, the, we had the um, we had the the Jellyfin folks on, and I asked him. One of the questions I asked him was, "Any plans to get to a, a real database on the back end?" And they're still working on that. I think they're they're struggling to get um, to get some help and and some people to contribute. But uh, that you are not alone in that uh, in that experience, and you are not alone in that struggle. Yeah. So largely, um, it it passed the wife acceptance factor mostly. So she's on iOS, and that's made things a little bit difficult because we have like we've got an Nvidia Shield, and I have a Graphene OS phone. And so when I'm doing the QA, like I don't see these things like on iOS, it took like legit long time to load a video. Like you press play and you'd wait three to five seconds. Whereas like I pull up my Android phone and click and it happened immediately. Um, <laughs> so the solve for that was, oh, well, they also have uh, an app called Swiftfin. But it, it was a mm -hmm. bunch of stuff like bumping around with um the iOS app didn't respect this, the forward and skip back um, settings for her. So like 
she didn't want to it was skipping 90 seconds at a time for some reason and whatever so there were some big little niggly things like that um we plugged it what i did like so there's a couple things that i really did like i liked the um ability to tweak a bunch of the stuff so if you got a video mismatch you could go Mm -hmm. and grab the imdb id and just plug it in and say this is what this is and that was useful for like a bunch of the kids shows um Mm -hmm. that it missed done i also liked it has a a direct integration with cody as well as like a traditional plug-in where you go into the plug-in and you watch it like normal but i wanted the cody functionality like creating your playlist on the fly like just hitting q and have a quick playlist being built right i wanted that um so the native the integration works but it's a little bit slow to play compared to the native uh cody and i'm not exactly sure why that is um but yeah on the whole so far so good i guess so this all led to another discussion between us about picking out a v host and i guess you said something that really stuck with me uh you were talking about and really you drew an analogy to war and how every time we go to war we learn something we learn something about the challenges we face we learn and innovate and change our strategy and then we see how it works in the real world and then we recalculate we do it again and every time we do that we get i would like to think a little bit better at it you drew an interesting parallel between that and servers talk about that so the parallel what i was talking about is if you look back over the major wars in history they tend to alternate between a defensive war and an offensive war so world war one was defensive because they invented the machine gun and that made it really hard so then they invented the tank and so world war ii was an offensive war and so on and so forth and and so based on the technology that's available the strategy kind of changes and Um, I was thinking before the show about how we've seen this in technology where we had giant, big, bare metal machines, and then we moved into VMs. And then we decided, well, you know, we should have compute VMs with the with the the nodes kind of spread out. And we we allowed like the migration of VMs. And then we came back and said, oh, no, no, no. You know, um, a big monolith bare metal machine is better. And then Kubernetes came out and Kubernetes again went to split out all of this workload and kind of spread it around. And now we're, we're talking about there's Red Hat and others are doing like hyper-converged Kubernetes, which is where a cluster runs a cluster of clusters. And so it's like this nested cluster thing that you're getting into where you're running those on big bare metal. So we went from, you know, Kubernetes in VMs to Kubernetes on bare metal running multiple Kubernetes inside of Kubernetes. So if that's a little bit confusing, just take away the idea that we've we've gone from centralization to decentralization and back again in some form as a cyclical uh, pattern in technology since the, I'd say, the late 90s. It's interesting because you see that with data, right? For a while, you ran on essentially dummy, we used to call them dumb terminals back in the day. And the dummy terminal would, it didn't do anything on its own. It just connected up to a, cent, to a, to a, you know, a, a mainframe and you would do all, I mean, our entire library was like that for years. And I remember when computers came out in the eighties and nineties that had enough resources in them that they were completely self-sufficient. And I remember thinking, man, that's so much better than those stupid dumb terminals. Like this is really fantastic. And it only lasted like 10 or 15 years. And then all of a sudden, and I really, where I put the blame, where I think this whole train came off the tracks was people took control of their own infrastructure and thought, well, this is great because I can buy it once and I'm done. And then they just didn't think about it. Right. So every time they'd get a file, they'd save it to the desktop and Eight years later, the desktop crashes, and then they go, well, where's all my stuff? I don't understand. Why did I stub my toe? And that led to this realization, like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing with this. I want it off my plate and somebody else's headache to deal with. And so then we've shifted back to running everything on the cloud. And that's kind of where we're at today. Like, people 
are largely happy to sign into their cloud accounts and have all of their stuff show up. And then we've kind of found this middle ground hybrid option where we sync the data down, you know, through things like OneDrive and, 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 and Google Drive so that people can work on files natively and then they sync back up. And so, so that hopefully they don't, they don't stub their toe. And as you were saying, Steve, we went from bare metal to VMs to containers to back to bare metal. And now I'm seeing a bit of, well, we have a physical host, we run a VM on it, and then in the VM we run the container. That seems to be a fairly popular workflow, if only because places like to be able to slide their VMs around, even if they're not using high availability. They like the ability to buy a new hardware and then not have to reset everything back up. And I think that'll change again when the when the industry kind of catches up to this idea of, uh, you know, ephemeral systems where we just point a, a a an orchestration system at a thing and say, I want this thing to be this thing, and it shows up. So they're probably going to shift again. Uh, it's interesting to watch that happen, and it's also interesting to watch what geeks do. So you and I, I think, share this love of it's great that you can do all of this stuff in containers, and you have more authority to speak on this than I do because you do it day in and day out on your day job. But then when it comes to your home system, you're doing a lot of stuff in VMs and or you said twice, I think, in this show alone, hey, here are the things that they're so important to me that I just run them on on their own dedicated thing. Can you talk about your decision tree and what the back and forth is, what that shift is and why you settle on where you settle? So part of it is like old man yelling at cloud, I think. You know, you're right. I spend mm -hmm. the vast, vast, vast majority of my day either creating uh, an application container or interacting with them like that is and has been my life for the last eight years so I'm super well versed in this in fact I um, at some point we were talking you and I had been talking about how I was um, creating my own container for something if you recall mm -hmm. we were talking about using the Red Hat um, app streams for doing that and yes. you're like why are you doing that they published it like, <laughs> well I want to know how this works um, so I do run some things in containers, like I, I run Wiki.js is in a container, and I have a couple of other containers floating around here or there, um, especially with AI stuff. When it comes to things that I actually want to adjust, I don't, so part of this is laziness, like I don't put in, I don't have a pipeline running at home. I don't want to have like a Jenkins or you, you know, insert pipeline here that I need to do so it rebuilds the container so that when I make a change, it kicks out the container and then redeploys it. I, I, I don't have a particular need to do that. Uh, I could do that. I do that every day for work. It would be an easy lift and shift. I just don't want to do that. So largely it's like, hey, I wanted to tweak this like PHP setting in Net Nextcloud. And I know that if I go to Etsy PHP, uh, dot I and I, I can do this and click save and watch the results as opposed to, you know, it's five containers and which one of them is causing me the problem. Um, so part of it is that. Um, and part of it is if I've got a giant VM server, like if we're talking about just centralizing things, when it's a critical serv service, I want to be able to tell my wife, turn this box on. This will make mm -hmm. Nextcloud go. This one makes Home Assistant go. That <laughs> makes my life so much easier than turn on the big thing, then go log into the VM console and make sure that this is running. And if it's not running, here's how you launch the virtual console so you can read me the output as opposed to get, get the little seven-inch monitor that's portable, plug it into the back of this thing. Like, there, I'm getting the heebie-jeebies just that. listening to describe this. So, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that maybe isn't necessarily an intentional decision, but is maybe a byproduct of other advantages. It also has the ability or the side effect rather of compartmentalizing all of your infrastructure, right? Like, so you could, you have the intelligence, you have the technical skill, you have the equipment, you could virtualize your entire house to where everything could just run off of one single V-host. Instead, you've chosen to kind of compartmentalize and break all of those things out. But in doing so, you don't have to worry about one thing 
taking out your whole house. Nextcloud's going to do Nextcloud even if Home Assistant dies. Home Assistant's going to do Home Assistant even if Nextcloud dies. And in a worst case scenario, if it ever came to it, because you're backing up all the data, there's no, no law stopping you from saying, oh, gee, the Nextcloud server died. Welp, guess I'm spinning up a VM of Nextcloud and restoring my data there until I fix the box. So you kind of have the best of all worlds when, you know, if you think about it. Yeah, the you know, the battle in IT is always where is your single point of failure? You will never, ever, and I don't care what anyone says, you will never eliminate a single point of failure. It doesn't matter how much money you spend, there will always be a single point of failure somewhere. It's mm-hmm. just where is that going to be? And for me, the single point of failure is, is the storage because um, that's I, like I have a giant, that is my giant server. I've got, what do I have? Two 20 terabyte hard drives, four eight terabyte hard drives, three, four terabyte hard drives and a bunch of SSDs. So that's my single point of failure. But from that, the reason why that was chosen was because what is the complexity of my backups? Do I go with Borg and have it um, try and backup everything individually? Do I have everything centralized and have like backup scripts that run off of this one centralized server? How do I, how do I manage that? Because at the end of the day, it's an inconvenience if Nextcloud goes down. If Home Assistant mm-hmm. stops working, you flick the light switches. You lose the family pictures that only have ever existed on your computer, and that is trouble. You, when you, when you look at, I, I, I'm not exactly sure how to frame this up, but I guess, do you worry about losing access to the things that you rely on, or are you confident enough in your ability to just spin it up on the side that it wouldn't be like you talk about the pictures, but even the pictures are backed up, right? So you could spin up a VM, set Nextcloud up, restore all your stuff, and you'd be back within, you know, minutes, not even hours. And that that's kind of what my point is. If I centralize the storage, so if the Nextcloud box blows up and like completely melts down for some reason, the data is still off on the storage. I still have to do some level of configuration restoration, but the data is still there. Um, It's unlikely that I would have an event that would take out the NAS because it's on UPS, which is on a surge protector. You know, like I'm I'm doing, they're mirrored pairs. Like there's all kinds of additional redundancy that I put into the storage that, that yes, it could it could happen. I could get a problem with a lightning strike or something, but that's why I also have my cold storage that isn't plugged in until I do a backup and then it gets unplugged from everything. So I've chosen the single point of stale, failure to be the storage because then it is easier to recover from individual services going down like that. Whereas if you lost all your QCOW2 files and the data also sits around on them, like you're in trouble. Well, I'm glad you said. I'm glad you, you you brought that up. So you really have set us up well for next week. So next week we're going to dig into specific decisions for picking out a virtual host. What things are to consider? Should you go the AMD route? Should you go the Intel route? What kind of hardware considerations? What things are outside of your control? Even if you. <laughs> have the budget what kind of things are potentially going to bite you what are the entry-level ways to get in and of course your questions and feedbacks if you have specific questions for steve and i write in at live at asknoahshow.com and we will absolutely address those questions for you next week or join us live and ask your question live that's probably really the best way to do it the music in our ears means we're out of time i thank you for joining us we record this show every tuesday at 6 p.m central that's the best way to take the show in but of course, all of the articles and resources that we mentioned on the show, they're available to you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Head over there, get the back catalog of the entire podcast, as well as all of the articles and references we use to make the show. We're back next Tuesday. You can follow us online or on Twitter, X, whatever it's called now. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show at Ask Noah Show. We're back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. <laughs>